Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, we continue through the Book of Romans and learn how God's judgment will be completely impartial. You can join us by turning your Bibles to Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, as Pastor Josh LaGrange delivers his sermon titled, God's Impartial Judgment. Chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 1 through 16. One of the things I'm going to kind of emphasize today is trying to tie together the flow of thought. It is a bit complex that goes through this passage here, so we're going to try to tie it all together. So we'll start in verse 1 of chapter 2. I'll read this, ask for God's help, and then we'll study together. So Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man? When you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Verse 4. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life, but to to those who are selfishly ambitious, And do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. And then here's our passage for today. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Let's ask for God's help. Oh, holy God, the task before us is daunting and quite frankly, impossible, humanly speaking. But we are glad that the things that are impossible with men are possible with you. God, you tell us that your word is above us, that unless you granted us help, enabling us, we would never come to truth and be changed by it. And so God, we, dust who have been breathed into life, cry out to you, the creator, God, we want you. God, we want to know you. God, we want to to know your will, to know how you've made this world. So please, oh God, open our eyes, shed light on what is beyond us. Give us help, oh God, I pray, 
in this time. I, I pray God, just even earthly speaking, just physically speaking, that we have the ability, oh God, help our minds to think and pay attention and to, and to go deep and, and Lord, to understand with clarity. But God, then the miraculous things where your word brings the change. Lord, the molding and the making and the awakening, please God, work these miracles. We do not deserve them. You do not have to give them. But oh God, we pray, be pleased, be glorified. We are worshipers, drawing to you our treasure, crying out to you our treasure, saying, we love you, want you, and want more of you. So please God, give us help. Lord, work your grace in this time, we beg, for the glory of your name. And we pray these things through Christ. Amen. In our land, uh, the symbol of justice that you will see in courtrooms and such is that of Lady Justice. I mean, if you can remember that statue where you've seen her, Lady Justice is wearing a blindfold with a sword in one hand and a set of scales in the other. It's meant to symbolize certain attributes of what pure and good justice would look like. Uh, That sword in her hand is meant to symbolize punishment coming on the wicked. Uh, The scales in her other hand are meant to symbolize the, the, the objective weighing of evidence. And then the blindfold around her eyes is meant to symbolize the impartiality of justice. Because we all understand that that is the ideal. That justice is not supposed to uh, favor the rich, the powerful, the celebrity, the beautiful while trotting on the poor or, or even vice versa. Justice is to be blind. It is to be objective. We all understand that's the ideal. But, but yet when it comes to our judgment before God, suddenly there are many who want to claim or, or even assure themselves that they are safe from the judgment because of all of these factors of things kind of like nationality, positions, titles, my family background, or, or roles that I've held within the church, or even external kinds of things like the number of times I've been to church, or baptism, or the Lord's Supper, last rites, confirmation, all of these kinds of things that many people oftentimes assure themselves, this is what makes me safe. You would be surprised how many people there are who actually believe that because they are American, that makes them more important than other peoples of the world. Uh, my brothers in ministry who preach down in the South in the Bible Belt tell me that it is just the week in and week out war that they fight, laboring to convince souls, you are not saved, you are not right with God just because you belong to a Baptist church or whatever else. These and dozens more are all used by souls to convince themselves I'm safe because of. But what God tells us is that his judgment is going to be completely righteous. And that's primarily what we we meditated on last week. And today the text tells us that God's judgment is going to be completely impartial, completely objective. 
And that's the big point made here in these last six verses of this section that we've been working through. That statement is just made there in verse 11, if you see it. And what happens in the next five verses is there's commentary given on how this is the case. Let me kind of explain this a little bit more here. Scripture is just so deep and wonderful. And, and here in this particular book, one of the things about it that is deep and wonderful is that it is laid out as a logical argument. And what is said in one verse builds. And there is this explanation that walks us through connecting dots to come to a conclusion. Well, if you jump back, um, back to verses one and two of chapter two, and you look there, the, the argument sort of goes like this. Verse one said to the religious man, you religious man who look at others who are non-religious and you judge them and you feel exalted yourselves. Listen to me, bub, you yourself need to know you have guilt before God too because you do the same kinds of things as the rest of the world. And then he followed that up in verse two by saying, and we know that the judgment of God rightly comes upon those who have sin. Really in the very next verse, what God could have done is make kind of the end big point that we're building towards. The end big point that all of this is flowing towards is actually stated several times in chapter three, but look at verse 10. That way sums it up pretty good there. Verse 10 of chapter three, there is none righteous, not even one. That would fit pretty nicely after verse two of chapter two. And if you only had 10 minutes, where, or two, excuse me, two minutes where you were trying to make a, a quick argument to someone on why they need Christ, you could go that route. But it's more helpful to pile on more evidence, to, to, to put some more weight there. Have you ever had somebody try to explain something to you? It probably happens a number of Sundays during sermons as well. Have you ever had somebody try to explain something to you and they showed you point A and the end point Z, but they didn't show you the points in between about how you get there and it can be confusing? What the book of Romans is doing is it's going to take us from here to there and it's going to connect a whole lot of dots along the way to kind of walk you along to sort of say, okay, do you see this point, point B? Okay, I see it. All right, now let's go to point C. It's going to kind of walk us so that by the end, it is undeniable the end points that are going to be made there. It's not skipping steps. And it's eventually bringing us to the point that we feel this truth. I am not safe by my own law keeping. I'm not safe. I'm not right with God. I have no chance at eternal life based on my deeds. I have guilt before God. And it's only when I feel that my works really cannot save me. No amount of religious deeds can ever make me right with God. It's only when I feel that, that I am ready and anxious to hear about another way of being made right with God. I cannot be right by law. Oh God, is there another way that I can have eternal life and be right with you? And that is where the text is building. And chapter three will then come in and say, here is how, here is this other way, not works, not law, but Christ, God has made a way for you to be right with him on another way. If you are listening today and you're new to all of this, 
maybe new to studying the Bible at all, or at least new to kind of studying it in depth, you might have come in here this morning feeling safe. I'm, my goal is to make you feel unsafe. You might have come in here feeling like everything was going to be okay because our culture never stops preaching this message. You're beautiful just the way that you are. And God has a very different message for you. God has the message to tell you that you have sinned against him. And even the world is willing to say, hey, nobody's perfect, but then here's their conclusion. Therefore, no big deal. The scripture says you've sinned and it's a big deal. Your sin makes you guilty before the holy God. You have broken the law of God and all lawbreaking is going to be judged. There is wrath coming on every sin. And all of this argument is building to show this. So here are some of the dots here. Chapter one addressed those engaged in false religions and showed you're guilty before God. Chapter two then comes in and says, you religious man, you are guilty before God. And let me show you how in the first five verses there, because you've sinned, you've practiced the same things. And then to connect more dots, we saw verses six through 10 show us that God's judgment will be righteous. He's going to judge based on your deeds. Well, Here's kind of a natural uh, next step in that. If you're not judged based on your deeds, let me clarify, you're not judged based on all those things that a lot of times you may think that you are. You're not gonna be judged based on your nationality. You're not gonna be judged based on whether or not you heard certain religious things. That message needs, we need to hear as well today. God is going to judge you based on what you have done. And then all of this will follow up to show, now here is how you are right with God. But first, we have to feel these effects of, of God showing us our guilt and showing us, we, we have to get rid of every single little thought in our heads that makes us think, I'll be right on the last day, I'll be okay because of this. If your answer is anything other than Christ, you are not on a foundation that you can stand on on the day of judgment. There is nothing you have, no, no lineage you have come from, no works you can bring, no good works that you can accomplish, no bribe that you can offer God, no beauty that he will be impressed with, no riches, no celebrity status that God is going to think, boy, I need him or he's okay. If your answer is anything other than Christ, you are in danger. Our safety is only Christ. To explain all of that, there's going to be some ways that he shows some things. He's going to clear up some misunderstandings that his readers had about God and the judgment and the law. And so in doing that, we're going to learn some things about God's law, about God's justice. Now, let me give a little bit of a warning. Today is one of those critical days where we are going to look at, I mean, the, the, what is said here, it is kind of complex. We're going to have to work through it. And I'm also going to tell you, you go to sleep on me today, you're probably going to wake up a heretic, okay? Just fair warning, okay? Because some of the, he's going to make a couple of points where if you miss the next thing he says, 
you're going to come to some wrong conclusions. And then we have to stone you. It's going to be a big deal. Just, let's just not go there, okay? Like, stay, stay with me in the argument here. I'm going to do my best to kind of follow and walk you through this. So what we've done in the outline is we noted five major points in verses 1 through 16. We've been working through them one at a time. Today, we're ready for this last point. Point number five, there is no partiality with God. God's coming judgment will be completely impartial. In order to explain that more fully, and especially to the group that is primarily addressed in chapter two, the Jewish audience, there's some commentary that he needs to give so that they feel the fact that God's judgment will be impartial. Here's another way to say it. Every human is gonna be judged in the same kind of way. The Jewish man and the non-Jewish man, the Gentile, the nations, we are all going to be judged in the same kind of way. So in doing that, let's work through five statements, five statements that are made here uh, that help explain this statement that God's judgment will be impartial. So here is statement number one. If you're keeping notes, number one, look at verse 12. Look at the first part, the first phrase here again. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. Now you could be thinking, all right, we're talking about the impartiality of judgment. How did we jump from that to law? Well, here's how. Follow along with me here. God created one nation out of the earth. We can go back to the book of Genesis God made the promise that he is going to bring redemption to the world. He's going to fix what was broken. There will be salvation that he brings. How's he going to do it? God created a nation that he would use in the world to be the blessing to the rest of the nations. If you remember in those promises that God gave to Abraham, God not only promised him that God would bless him, but the big point being, you will be a blessing to the nations. God created a nation, the nation of Israel, where he came and did special things in them and to them, entered into covenants, blessed them in special ways. But always what he was telling them is, I have a job for you. I am going to bless the rest of the world through you. God gave them his scriptures, the definitive message of God to mankind. He gave it to this people and he said, be a light, be a light to the nations and I am gonna accomplish my purposes through you. But in sin and spiritual arrogance and carelessness with the scriptures, the majority of this group misunderstood God's point. Now that's not trying to single them out. That's just like all the rest of the world has missed the point. And it's just like how a lot of times we could think that we are right with God just because we're Baptist or just because Catholic or Church of Christ, whatever. In every single religious group, it always exists. There are people who arrogantly think they're better than others and right with God because I belong to this thing. And that's a misunderstanding of the scriptures. And when you read the gospels and you read Jesus's preaching and teaching, one of the things you'll see is he spent a lot of time correcting misunderstandings about the Bible, correcting ways they had twisted scripture. They twisted the, what the Bible said about marriage. He corrected it. A lot of the Sermon on the Mount is correcting things they had misunderstood. Well, on this subject right here, God did a lot of correcting as well. And this passage, 
One of the things I want to tell you is going on here is one of the things happening in this passage is some correction of misunderstanding that many of the Jews had about their identity with God. In fact, I, I'd submit to you, I don't think there's a single truth in verses 11 through 16, other than specifically the gospel and the name of Jesus revealed in the New Testament. I think every single truth we're going to look at is a truth that is made in the Old Testament. It's a point that was there and they misunderstood some things. And so what he is doing is he's coming to them and addressing some of their errors of thinking, correcting them, and then bringing the big reveal of how this makes us in need of Christ. So here was the primary misunderstanding. Most of the Jews believed this. We are safe because we are sons of Abraham. We are the offspring of Abraham. Now, we've already mentioned that in our study, but let me take you a little bit further. We're safe because we are sons of Abraham and we're the ones God gave the law to. Then hang on to this next sentence. We're the only ones who can obey God because we're the only ones who have the law. And it's that last thought there that the Holy Spirit through Paul really starts to address and expose me like, well, wait a second here, guys. You've misunderstood something. So here, here's kind of the, the overview of that section. It's kind of like Paul speaks to this audience. He says, look, look, guys, I've got news for you. The Gentiles, the nations of the earth, they also have the law of God. No, they don't have all that God gave you at Mount Sinai. You had a special law, but he also gave them his law. God wrote it on their hearts so listen to me, Jewish audience and you religious man, you need to know that you are not right with God. You're not justified just because you have the law. You're not righteous just because you've heard the law. It's the people who do the law, keep the law, who are right with God. And then the rest of the chapter, when we come to verses 17 to 29, here's gonna be the big overview there. You haven't kept the law. And he's going to show that. He's going to expose that so that they feel individual commandments that they have broken. You have broken the law. So in the same way that the Gentiles have broken the law, you have broken the law. All are guilty. All need Christ. That's the argument. That's where he's taking us in the text, which is just deep and wonderful. You can see it's kind of complicated. This isn't the kind of thing you get just in one reading of the Bible. But along the way, as we work through Romans, there are going to be all kinds of sections where these kinds of arguments are set up in order to teach these big points. So that's the overview. Let's investigate these particulars that he says. They were assuring themselves, we're right because we have the law. He's showing them, you're not the only ones who have the law. So work through this. All who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. This that he is referring to here, this is the Gentiles, the nations of the earth who did not have the scriptures. Now the New American Standard here, if you have that on your laps, great job. It does something helpful here. When scripture, when, when, when it's talking about the law here, the law that God gave Moses, that God gave at Mount Sinai through Moses. What the New American Standard does is whenever it's talking about that law, it capitalizes the L. So as to give it a title, the law that is there. In just a little bit, he's gonna mention another law 
Gentiles didn't have the Bible. So they did not have the law that God gave at Sinai, but they had a law. What law is that? Well, that's what's coming up here in just a moment. The the law of Moses, let's talk about it for just a little bit here. We are going to go a little bit further than the text goes, but I want us to kind of have an understanding of law here today and some of the ways it's used in the Bible. I believe this is kind of the reformed view that the law had three parts. The law of Moses had three main parts, the moral, the judicial, and the ceremonial. If you remember in our six-month overview of the Old Testament, we really got into this. One of the whole sermons on one day was on the law that God gave. And look, think of through the various parts here. The moral part, the moral law, that's the most obvious. That's the parts that you think of in the Ten Commandments. You shall not murder, you shall not steal, honor your father and mother, etc. That's the easy one. The judicial. That was the part where God uh, spoke concerning matters of justice. Like God told them what the punishment for uh, theft should be. Okay? Judicial. That makes sense. But the third part is the one that is the most confusing. It's the ceremonial The ceremonial law, that's the one that throws people off a lot of times. And that first time they're reading through the Bible and they come to Leviticus and they just think, this is so strange. I know God does not calling me to do this. So what does it mean here? These were specific rules that God gave and he meant them to be temporary. And they taught a point. God used them as illustrations to show things. All right, so here's an example. God gave the instruction, you are not to uh, hitch a yoke to two different kinds of animals. Now, your first time reading through the Bible, you read that and you thought, God, how am I supposed to apply this? I I don't even farm. I don't don't know what what I mean. Oxen, what am I supposed to do with this? Well, the New Testament comes around and teaches and, and shows us that God meant bigger principles here. God taught the principle that you are not to yoke yourself to an unbeliever. You're not to marry an unbeliever. And that principle is shown there. And there are dozens and dozens more just like that. Dozens of specifics about the temple and the priest and the worship of the old covenant, which by the way, every single one of them points us forward to something in the new covenant that is a way we keep it, but we keep it in Christ. Sacrifices of the old Testament. Does this not show us things from this new covenant that Christ is our ultimate sacrifice and we continue to make offerings to God? So we're shown all of these things. So the combination there of the moral, the judicial, the the ceremonial, all of this is combined in in the law of Moses. You might think of it like this. You know those little Russian dolls uh, that are kind of shaped like an egg? And you open one up and there's another one inside and you kind of keep doing this all the way down. Um, I believe they're, I'm going to butcher the name, Matryoshka dolls, Matryoshka dolls, something along those lines right there and what they are called. And so you keep going down in there. You might think of that outer doll, the biggest one, as the law of Moses. And inside it contained the moral law. And inside it contained just laws of justice for nations and such. God contains several things in that big package of what we oftentimes call the law of Moses. Well, for the Gentile, 
Think of the man living on the island somewhere who never had the Bible. He never had the law of Moses. They didn't know that specific rule about don't wear a garment that's woven with two different kinds of fabric. And the point that's going to be made here is, no, they didn't have all that, but they had a law. All souls have a law. It is the moral law. The law of God that is written on everyone's hearts. All the nations have this law written on their hearts. And so there's a whole lot more to see with that, but let's keep working through with the statements. Here's statement number two. All who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So now who we're talking about here is the Jewish people. They were under this law of Moses. Now for just a second here, think about this word under that he uses. When God gave the law at Sinai to Israel, they were brought into an agreement with God. They are brought into a covenant. You might think of like a legally binding contract where they became God's special people. And there was a law of that contract. There were rules of the contract. The law was the law of Moses and they were under that law, meaning they were bound to that law. But here's a point that God is showing here. The Gentiles and nations of the earth, they have a law, but they were never under that law of Moses. Meaning, all right, now here's one of the important principles that comes out of this. God is not holding the nations accountable for something they had no access to. And this brings up another of the principles in the passage. For God to judge impartially means Every soul is going to be judged based on what they had access to, based on what obligations they were under. Now, here's the part. You fall asleep. You're waking up a heretic. I promise, okay? Because oftentimes when people hear this principle right here, we will be judged based on what we had access to. Sometimes here's where people's minds go. They think things like, well, those peoples of the earth down in the jungle and then the the guy on the island out there, he doesn't have the gospel. So God's not really going to judge him. God's going to give him like a free pass into heaven. And people who say things like that, they've missed the point of this passage and many others because this is made several times. Here's the point that this passage is making. No, they they have a law that they are under. They have never heard of the gospel. No, but they know of the law. There's a law written on their hearts. They are accountable before God. They know a bunch of things that God has shown them about what is right and what is wrong. No, they didn't know the part about don't wear two different kinds of fabric because they weren't under the law of Moses. They didn't know that rule, but they had access to the law of God written on the hearts. Let's continue that thought in statement number three. Gentiles actually have a law of God. Look at verse 14 and read it with me. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, do instinctively the things of the law. These, not having the law, are a law to themselves. All right, and we're trying to tie more of this kind of stuff together here. The Gentiles, they were not under the law of Sinai, but they do have a law. What law is that? It's explained here that it is an internal law. Look at verse 15 and read it in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, 
and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them on the day of judgment. He goes on to say there in verse 16, this is a law that does work in their hearts. This is a law that influences their conscience. Well, we sometimes call this by different names. I'm going to call it the moral law. Sometimes we just call it the law of God, but realize that even when a secular person is just talking about morality and ethics, they're talking about that understood dimension that we all have a capacity inside of us to know right and wrong and some of these these realities here. So we oftentimes just call this the, the moral law. And there are some other places in scripture that refer to this as well. Sometime, if you're interested in this, let me just give you some homework on your own. First Corinthians chapter nine, verses 20 to 21. Sometime on your own, just go read there and you'll see three laws referred to there. The law of Moses, the law of God that will all souls know and feel, and then also the law of Christ. What does it mean to be a Christian and follow after him there? But, but, but think through some of these things right here. It's a whole bunch of ramifications and conversations that could have, because for instance, you could ask, all right, well, what is the difference between all of these laws right here? Well, there are some difference of particulars from the law of Moses to the moral law or the law of Christ. But think about that man on the island, that man on the island who doesn't have a Bible, There are things he knows, and there are things that he doesn't know. There are some particulars of the law of Christ that we have in this new covenant that the man on the island doesn't know about. So for instance, Jesus has instructed us, his people, to eat the Lord's Supper and to be baptized. The man on the island doesn't know about that. The man on the island will not be judged for not taking the Lord's Supper. Does that make sense? When he stands before God, God is not going to say, why didn't you take the Lord's Supper? He didn't know about that, but he will be judged by the law he is under. The law that is written on his heart. The law that his internal conscience speaks to him about and convicts him when he is honest. The man on the island knows that he ought to treat the one true God as the one true God. He knows that he ought not make images. He knows that he ought to give reverence and speak highly of this one true God. He knows that he ought to set aside time to give worship to this creator. He knows that he ought to honor his father and his mother. He knows that he ought not murder and therefore he should not hate. He knows that he ought not commit adultery and therefore he should not lust after women. He knows that he should not steal. He knows that he should not lie. And he knows that he should not covet, have jealousy in his heart and let evil live in his heart. Now you saw what I just did there. I just walked through the 10 commandments, at least the spirit of each of them. He understands those. The man on the island will not be judged for not being baptized. He never knew he was supposed to be, but he will be judged for the law that was written on his heart and he has broken it just like you and I have broken it. And where the text is bringing us here is the man on the island has broken the law of God. The Jewish man having the law of Moses has broken the law of God. Us growing up in America before you came to faith in Christ, whatever law we knew about, we had access to, we have a law, we have broken it, all stand condemned and therefore all need another solution. If we are left only to law, 
buddy, you and I are in trouble. But the gospel is, the mercy of God is, there is a way to be saved. There is a may to be right with, way that is right with God that is not about law, it's about grace. So, so I'm hoping that we're seeing here the difference between justice and grace. Sheer justice means condemnation for you and I. But the grace of God is that he's made a way for us to be accepted by him by another way. And I hope you're seeing why this whole law discussion matters. I know that if the next time you're asked to do a Bible study or lead a devotion, this is probably not the subject you're going to pick to go lead a little kid's devotion or something. But do you see why it matters? Do you see why we have to understand these kinds of things here? There's a whole way of approaching the Bible that kind of says things like, preacher, Man, why we got to be looking at these kinds of things? Why don't you just tell me how to be a better dad tomorrow? Do you not see that God is showing how the world works here? Right? He's showing how all the cosmos has been ordered. He, he, he's showing the principles that guide all things. Listen to me. He is showing you how he has worked redemption. He is showing you how he can save sinners and yet remain just. That's a lot bigger than just three points on how to be a better boss. How about see how the cosmos was ordered? Well, here's the fourth statement. Verse 13, you can read along with me. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. First of all, he uses a word here for the first time that is going to be part of the biggest point made in this book, the whole argument. It's the word justified. I said last week that when you become a Christian, there's a whole new vocabulary you got to learn. You may not use the word justified and justification on a daily basis right now, but boy, we want to bring you to the place where you are. You need to become fond of this word. You need to love this word. And when we come to chapter three, the big point of all of it is this concept, justification. So when we get there, we're going to spend a whole day just talking about that word right there. But for now, let me give you just kind of the brief thing of what he's talking about. To be justified means to be cleared, to be pardoned, to be declared you're in the right. Here's one of the modern ways that we use this. If a man breaks through this door right now, with a gun and tries to harm us and we drop him in his tracks, our shooting of him, and we will, our shooting of him will be justified. Okay, just want to let you know where we stand on that. Our shooting will be justified. And what that means is the law will not condemn us because we've not done evil. The law will declare you did what is right. Well, before God, we need to be right. If you are not right with God, there is no eternal life. There is no being in his presence. There, there is no kingdom of heaven for you. Our sin makes us not right. But what Christ came to do is make a way for you to be declared right based on his rightness, his righteousness, and not our own. And that is what grace is this grace. So here he is saying to the Jewish people with the law of Moses, you are not righteous just because you have heard the law and just because God gave it to you. The only way you'll be righteous by the law 
is if you could keep it and do it. And then the point in the rest of the chapter is going to be, you can't. Chapter three, we're all guilty. It's where we're going here. Let me, let me, let me bring up one sub point though here so that we, we see some things about the text. When you have a conversation with those who believe that we are saved by works or maybe saved by faith plus your works, there are many denominations and groups that believe and teach this. Obviously, the most notable around here is, is the Catholic Church. They will sometimes point to this verse right here and say, look, it says right there, the doers of the law will be justified. But do you see the flow of the argument is being missed there? You know, we've made the point, you can't just take every Bible verse and throw it on a, on a, on a coffee mug. Some you can, and you keep the meaning of them. But many others have to be read in context. Just like you don't like it when your favorite politician gets taken out of context by the news media that you can't stand. It happens on every side. It's disgusting. It happens every day. It's their whole life. You know that that aggravates you. In the same way, you cannot just rip places of the Bible out and use them any way that you want. He is making an argument here, and the argument is going like this, and I know I'm repeating it over and over, but I want to make sure that we understand it. The argument is going like this. You're not righteous just because you have God's word. The only way you'll be righteous according to works is if you keep his word. The rest of the chapter is going to say, you haven't done it. You can't do it. You break it in many parts. Chapter 3 will come. We have all broken it. None are righteous, not even one. That's a direct quote from chapter three. Not even one. We need Christ. We need another way. Well, here's the fifth statement. On the day of judgment, the law of God will accuse or defend every heart. Look at verse 15 and read it with me. In that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. I want to make sure we understand you have a conscience right now. Your conscience does not work perfectly. Our consciences have also been corrupted by the fall and they need informed. But when you do direct evil, your conscience alerts you. Your conscience tells you something. But that's actually not what the text is talking about here. The text is talking about the day of judgment whenever you stand before God. On that day, your conscience is going to speak. On that last day, on the day of judgment, the law that you have been under will make you feel, feel guilty or cleared based on every category that is brought up. We saw that the judgment is going to be detailed. It's not just a quick overview. Your life is evaluated. And you know, we don't know exactly what that's going to look like. When we try to picture that in our minds, there are some images that God has given us, but there are some images we don't have. Some people have imagined that one by one, we will step before God and maybe on some big screen, your life is played out and you answer for it. Maybe it's that books, uh, or that your life account is read from the books, or maybe it's just a list of deeds. We don't know for sure what that part is going to look like. But what we do know is that every deed is going to be brought up. And what the text is saying is as each deed, each, each work, each moment is brought up, your conscience is going to be doing some things inside of us. The day of judgment 
The moment of standing before the holy God, the one you cannot hide from, the one before whom heaven and earth tremble, there will be no lying. Look over at verse 19 of chapter three. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. What does it mean that every mouth will be closed? It means that all the ways that men give their excuses on that day, their mouths will be shut because in that moment there is no hiding and there is no lying. Men lie to themselves now. They delude their own hearts. They excuse their sin. They justify themselves to themselves and justify themselves to others. But before the living God, Just like when Isaiah came into the presence of the holiness of God and suddenly his sin became very, very evident to him. When you are standing in the presence of the holiness and glory of God, there will be no ability to try to give some excuse. You will not be able to lie to yourself because everything is made clear and you will not be able to lie to God. You will in terror know there is no hope. All the nonsense stops. It's just you and God. He sees into your soul and your ability to lie and give excuses at that moment will come to an abrupt end. His judgment will be righteous and his judgment will be completely impartial. Now, let me try to tie this together and bring a little bit of application here at the end. You have absolutely no hope on which you can securely stand from all of the places that so often people use to make them feel safe. Being a part of a family of Christians does not make you right with God. Simply being a part of a good church, you might even be received as a member. That in itself does not save you and make you right with God. Just hearing preaching and teaching, just reading the Bible does not make you right with God. It's not the readers who are right with God. It's not the hearers who are right with God. It's not being a part of a youth group, Bible studies, prayer meeting, Christian school groups, voting a political party. None of these make you right with God. Being an American does not make you matter more. While God sees every single part of you, there is nothing you have that will impress him. You don't have anything he didn't give you. Are you beautiful? Who made you? Do you have money? Who ordained your life? You have nothing that's going to impress God, you have only one hope. You will be judged based on you, your deeds, your life. You are born under law and that law condemns you because you have broken it. But friend, there is another who was born under the law. One of my favorite verses from the Bible, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Why is that significant? Why is the Bible so particular as to show that he was born under the law? Jesus was born under the law of God as a man like you and I were born under the law so that he could keep the law and become our substitute. Friends, on the cross, As Jesus was crucified, 
as if he were a lawbreaker. What scripture says is that by repentance and faith, when we come to be united with Christ, when we come into covenant with Christ, it is as if your sins were placed on Christ and his law keeping gets counted as ours. He kept the law that you and I could not. The law was gonna be fulfilled one way or the other. Either it was going to be kept by Christ or the justice of the law was going to be carried out. You this morning, the justice of the law that you are under must be carried out one way or the other. You will either receive the justice or Christ will have received it on your behalf. And by coming to Christ in faith, we receive not only him taking our sins on to himself, but us receiving his righteousness, his perfect law keeping. You need to enter that covenant with Christ. So let me just say to you, if you're attending here and maybe you've just kind of started to think of yourself as a Christian because everybody else thinks of you as a Christian or maybe thinking that your attendance is what made you a Christian, you need to realize that you personally must respond to God through Christ. Trust in him. And there has to be a way that you cry out to him knowing I need this. Verbalize the words. Don't be too proud to say it to God. I am a sinner. I need to be saved. And the scripture says, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Turn in your heart, trust in Christ, cry out to him. And the invitation I give you, like I do so often, before you head out these doors, if you're not sure where you are, come talk and just ask some questions. I'm not gonna be mean or judgy or scary. I just wanna talk with you and help you see some things from scripture and show you how to be right with God. But let me tell you right, you don't need me or anyone else. Your heart can respond to Christ even now if you will cry out to him. Let me close this in prayer. Oh Lord God, thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for what you show us. God, you telling us how the world works, how you ordered this cosmos. There's something so fulfilling about it, about understanding more of who you are in your design. God, I pray that we will come to greater understanding. I pray that we will live as a people that honors you no longer under condemnation, but in gratitude and enjoy living obedience to you because we love you. But I pray for any in the room, oh God, that has not yet responded. Please, oh God, haunt them until in the misery of their guilt, they see no other way of peace than to run to you. And I pray that you will draw them to yourself. Please, God bless us. We ask all these things through Christ. Amen. God bless you all. Thanks for listening. And we hope you enjoyed Pastor Josh LaGrange's sermon titled, God's Impartial Judgment. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, Follow us on Twitter at TrueVineIND or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.